So today uh, I'll talk about what to do off of retreat and that's essentially the lifelong practice that you continue to develop and cultivate because meditation is only one aspect of it right when we talk about this process it's talked about in different ways sila samadhi and panya so you've been focusing on the samadhi aspect for the most part which is the meditation aspect the development of the mind through loving kindness and the rest of the brahma viharas but in order for you to have uh, samadhi you need to have sila or shila and that is essentially what it means is the bedrock of everything it's the foundation of everything and when we talk about sila we're talking about taking and keeping the precepts so in the mornings you take the I don't know how many precepts you take eight precepts eight precepts now tomorrow when you get off a retreat you will only take the five precepts and the five precepts are very easy to follow they're actually very universal to the human condition it doesn't matter what tradition you follow it's all universal to any tradition what are the five precepts we'll go over that as we discuss what I want to talk about and what I want to talk about today is the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth. Right? There are the four noble truths. There's the truth of suffering, the truth of the causes and conditions for suffering, the, tr the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And the way leading to the cessation of suffering is known as the Eightfold Path the Noble Eightfold Path. So what are the eight aspects or factors of the Eightfold Path? There is Samaditi, which is right view. Samasankapa, which is right intention. Uh, Samavacha, which is uh, right uh, speech. There's uh, Samakamanta, which is right action. Uh, then there is Sama Ajiva, which means right lifestyle or right livelihood. There is Sama Vayama, which means right effort. There's Sama Sati, which means right mindfulness. And there's Sama Samadhi, which means right meditation or right collectedness. So what is right view? Right view, there are two aspects to right view, or two folds. There is the mundane version and the supramundane version. The mundane version of right view is something that everybody should cultivate for the benefit of their practice. The mundane right view basically is the understanding that there is meaning in giving and what is offered. So this is an emphasis on generosity. What does it mean to be generous? It means to give with an open mind and an open heart. And what do you give? You can give resources, you can give food, you can give clothing, you can give shelter, you can give the Dhamma, which is the ultimate kind of giving. You can share your smile with others. That's a very often overlooked um, aspect of giving being able to share your kindness and your happiness with others. 
So there is meaning in giving. There is meaning in what is offered and sacrificed. There is an understanding of karma. That is to say that there is action and consequence. The intentions that we have have some kind of direct consequence. Maybe not immediately, maybe not subsequent to that, but at some point there can be a consequence to the actions that we produce in the way of mental intentions, verbal speech, and uh, <coughs> physical actions that we commit with intention. So the action and consequence is a very important aspect. The next part is spontaneous rebirth. The idea that life exists from one life to the next, or there is existence from one life to the next immediately. But on a smaller scale, what we're saying is that the arising and passing away of consciousness, that our awareness arises in one moment, passes away, and, an arise, and a new one arises in the next moment. So it's spontaneous. What seems to be one fluid stream of consciousness is actually made up of compartments, iotas of the arising and passing away of individualized awareness or consciousnesses. Then there is the understanding that there is mother and father. This is a very important one. What that means is there is a gratitude and acceptance of one's parents however they've been. It doesn't condone their abusive nature, it doesn't condone the things they might have done wrongly to us. But what it is saying is we are grateful for our parents to the extent that they were able to bring us into this existence for the potential to experience Nibbana. And so for that we are grateful. And the Buddha has said in different ways that there is no real way for us to repay our parents for just bringing us into this existence. Then another aspect of this mundane right view is that there are teachers and those who have walked the path who can show you that path. Traditionally it's known as there are those Brahmins and ascetics. But essentially it's meaning there are those who have walked the path and can show you the way of walking that path. So why do we have this mundane right view? This is a right view that gives psychological well-being to you. It's a form of bringing some upliftment to the mind. It's a way of bringing some kind of very mundane relief to the mind. Because if you don't have those kinds of aspects in mind, then the mind has a general tendency to be restless. It's always me versus the world, or it's always the world is unfair. You know, my parents did so and so. There is no meaning in doing things. There's, it, the world is meaningless. If you start from that view, that's why it's called samaditi, right? Meaning it's a perspective, it's a view that you take. And if you start with the perspective that's wrong, then how are you going to progress on the path? So get your view straight first, is what the Buddha says. When you have the mundane right view, that will lead you into the next steps. 
and ultimately take you to the supramundane right view, which is the full understanding of the Four Noble Truths. This right view takes you to Samasankapa, which is right intention. And right intention has three components to it. The first is renunciation, the second is non-ill will, and the third is non-cruelty. When we say renunciation, we're not saying that we leave this world and all become monastics. Not necessarily. You can still be in the lay life, but you can let go of what? Let go of your selfishness. Let go of your ego. Let go of taking things personally. Let go of identifying with all experiences as me, mine, or myself. This is the true meaning of renunciation. And it can only happen through correct insight of seeing that all phenomena that we experience has the nature of arising and passing away. Which means that it is liable to at some point cause suffering. Which means it should not be taken as me, mine or myself. The reason being is when we talk about the self, the Atman, right, the Atma. In ancient India, and even now, when we talk about the Atma, especially this, this understanding of the Atma has been very much fully developed in the Vedantic traditions, right? There is the idea that this Atma is Sat Chit Ananda. It is existing, it is conscious, and it is full of bliss. In other words, this Atman, this self, is all-pervading, it is unchanging, permanent, and the source of happiness. If we take that as a concept, and we use that as a touchstone, that this is what the self is, and you take all of your experiences through the five physical sense bases and through the mental sense base, and you look at all phenomena and you see that in essence it doesn't fit that understanding of self because ultimately all conditioned phenomena because it's conditioned by previous causes and conditions has the nature of passing away when those causes and conditions are gone therefore all experience is impermanent if it's impermanent then even if it is a happy experience, by nature of the fact that it is impermanent, liable to change, it is Dukkha. <coughs> and therefore, it cannot be seen as me, mine, or myself. This is the way we understand and develop this renunciation. The second part is non-ill will. What does non-ill will mean? not having hatred or aversion towards anything or anyone. And that is cultivated through the practice of loving-kindness. When you have perfected loving-kindness, not even an iota of frustration or irritation will arise in the mind. That is the perfection of loving-kindness. No impatience about anything. So this is non-ill will, non-harming or non-cruelty, not causing harm to oneself 
and not causing harm to another. This is developed through the cultivation of compassion, karuna. Because remember what compassion means. Compassion means the recognizing of another's suffering. And when you recognize another's suffering as your own, understanding this person is upset the same way I would be upset. This person is sad the same way I would be sad. For me, to add to their suffering is cruel. If somebody is upset with me, it's because of their own suffering. It's because of whatever is wrong in their own lives. Why should I act in the same way and cause them suffering or further suffering? And not only that, but cause myself suffering in doing that. The mind doesn't think that way. The mind wants to be right all the time. You know, in a debate, in an argument. I am right, they are wrong. I won't listen to reason, no matter what. Why? Because it's holding dear this sense of self to ideas, to concepts, to identity, which is like sandcastles in front of the seashore. As soon as the wave comes in, the sandcastle goes away. That's what our identity is. It disintegrates all the time. What we take to be me, as this is my body, this is my mind, these are my ideas, these are my relationships, these are my children, these are my parents, these are my degrees, these are my uh, qualifications, these are my years of experience and all of that. All of that has arisen due to causes and conditions. You might think that you were in control of those causes and conditions, but even that sense of control is conditioned by external causes and conditions. So by taking things personally, we start to defend those things. Somebody says something to us in an unwholesome way and we react in kind. It's because we have this, this little self in the mind that says, how could they say this to me? So if you start to see the self as just disintegrating all the time because it's dependent upon causes and conditions, then you stop taking things personally. When you stop taking things personally, then you have more compassion because other people might not know better. Right? And if they don't know any better, then how do you expect them to behave a certain way? Let go of any expectations of any kind of standards. If you are compassionate to yourself, forgiving to yourself, all right, I made a mistake, it's okay, I'll move on. If you treat other people the same way, then you won't be cruel to them. Somebody's shouting, abusing, using all kinds of derogatory terms against you. How does that have anything to do with you? It's just sound. Nothing to do with you. Because you take it as this is me, you take it personally. But then if you switch it and say this is because of that person's suffering, then you become naturally compassionate. So the cultivation of compassion is perfected in having total destruction of any intention to harm.
one way or the other. This is right intention. This right intention leads to right speech. What is right speech? Right speech is understood to be the abstaining from, refraining from, not indulging in false speech, harsh speech, abusive speech, speech that divides, gossip, and unnecessary speech. So what is false speech? False speech is speech with the intention to deceive someone, right? You know it not to be true and yet you say it. Harsh speech, using a certain kind of tone that can inflict pain in a person. Abusive speech, using certain kinds of words to demean a person. Divisive speech, saying one thing to one person, saying another thing to another person and creating division amongst groups. And gossip. What is gossip? Talking about another person, whether you know it to be true or not, right? And how do you know something is gossip? If you, what you are saying about that person, you could say with that person being in the room, then that's not gossip. But if you have any discomfort in saying something about that person while they're in the room, as if they were in the room, and that is gossip, talking about other people behind their backs. And then unnecessary speech, speech that comes out of restlessness, being a talking head, basically, just speech for, you know, the empty silences that you have, being uncomfortable with those empty silences and trying to just, you know, say something, talking about this, that, or the other, you know, that's unnecessary speech. So a good way to understand how to have right speech is to think before you speak. So this word think, there's an acronym for it. T-H-I-N-K, it's an acronym. So T stands for timeliness, time. Is it the right time to say what it is that you want to say? H is for honesty. Do you know what you're going to say is truthful or not? I is for intention. What is your intention behind that? Is the intention to cause disruption or is the intention to create peace? Is it a wholesome intention or an unwholesome intention? N is for necessity. Is it necessary for you to say what you have to say because it's of benefit to another person? And K is, can you say it with kindness? Now, oftentimes when I say that, a lot of times people say, well, I am in the office and I have a position where I need to get results from my employees or whatever it is. And sometimes I have to be stern with them. Well, can you be kindly stern? Can you be sternly kind, right? You can still have some level of kindness, even if you have to reprimand someone. So think before you speak. That is the right speech. Right action is abstaining from breaking any of the precepts. Already right speech is 
abstaining from breaking the precept of false speech. But here we're talking about abstaining from killing, harming and killing living beings. Abstaining from that. Abstaining from stealing or taking what is not given. That's a very interesting way of putting it. It's not just stealing, it's about taking what is not given. In other words, you're not just going to borrow something from someone and then put it back without them not knowing it or without them knowing it. Rather, you're going to ask them for permission. Is it okay if I take this? Is it permitted for me to borrow this? Because that could lead to misunderstandings if you don't. Where did my stuff go? What happened? Causes commotion. So abstaining from taking what is not given. This is very important to understand. Abstaining from sexual misconduct or sensual misconduct. What is sexual misconduct? Has nothing to do with judgments about somebody's sexuality. Doesn't matter. Whatever kind of sexuality you have, that doesn't matter. You could be in a polygamous, polyamorous uh, situation. You could be in a thruple. You could be in whatever kind of situation you want to be in. But do not cheat on your partner or partners. That is sexual misconduct. Causing yourself harm or another being harm. Right? So that includes, obviously, rape and pedophilia and other things. Right? All of that is part of sexual misconduct. Sensual misconduct is becoming so desirous of attaining something in, in the pursuit of sensual pleasure that you break the other precepts in order to achieve the sensual pleasure. So that is abstaining from sexual or sensual misconduct. Now, it doesn't include it's not necessary, it's not uh, traditionally included in right action, but abstaining from intoxicants is also important. What does that mean, abstaining from intoxicants? Abstaining from alcohol, drugs, abstaining from even binge watching on Netflix or whatever it is, because you're overindulging the senses, right? Overindulgence in anything causes what? Dullness in the mind. When you become drunk or intoxicated, there's more of a liability for you to break the other precepts because your judgment isn't there. Your ability to discern what's going on isn't there. So you are more liable to break another precept. That's why the Buddha included this. Actually, the reason the Buddha included specifically not indulging in alcohol is because it, this is in the Vinaya. Uh, before that, there was no such injunction against alcohol. But it was when an Arahat drank a little too much and became drunk and started uh, misrepresenting what was going on by being a little tipsy and walking unmindfully and so on, that the Buddha said, okay, we need to have a rule about this. So that's the fifth precept, abstaining from indulging in intoxicants. Then that leads to right livelihood. So right livelihood means not doing any kind of business or being employed in any trade 
that cause, causes you harm or causes another being harm. So this is traditionally understood as not indulging in anything like dealing with weapons, dealing with poisons, dealing with alcohol or in, intoxicants, uh, dealing with human trafficking, and dealing with the killing of other living beings. If you abstain from this, then anything that you're doing is fine. So for the monastics, their, their understanding of right livelihood is abstaining from all kinds of right livelihood that can take away from why they became monks in the first place, which is to attain Nibbana, to attain full awakening. That's why sometimes in the suttas it says wrong livelihood is also being a healer or a doctor. And so people take that and say, does that mean that me going to medical school and becoming a doctor has caused me to become, you know, caused me to have wrong livelihood? No, not at all. What the Buddha is saying is that for monks, if they want to be doctors, then they should stop being monks and be doctors. Monks came, become monks or monastics become monastics for one purpose, and that is the purpose of full awakening. Anything that takes you away from that, in that case, is considered wrong livelihood. So, right livelihood is abstaining from any trade or practice that causes you harm or causes another being harm. Then that takes you into right effort. So, right, <coughs> right speech, right action, and right livelihood. These three constitute sila. Now we're going to get into samadhi. And what constitutes as samadhi? That is right effort, right mindfulness, and right collectedness. So right effort. Remember I told you on the first day, right effort is made up of four components. The preventing of the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. You do that when you recognize. The second right effort is to abandon already arisen, unwholesome states of mind. That you do when you relax. The third is to generate a wholesome state of mind. That you do when you re-smile. And then the fourth is to maintain that wholesome state of mind. That you do when you continue staying with your object of meditation. So that's part of right effort. Every time you use the six R's or any time you use the four R's, you're practicing right effort. And the, and the way it's been un described is that the right effort is really the heart of the Eightfold Path. It's the core. It's through right effort that you go from wrong view to right view. Wrong intention to right intention wrong speech to right speech, wrong action to right action, wrong livelihood to right livelihood, wrong mindfulness to right mindfulness, wrong concentration to right concentration. So once you have right effort, it takes you immediate, immediately into right mindfulness. What is right mindfulness? Right mindfulness means to be able to observe and remember to observe how mind's attention moves from one thing to the other. So 
it can be broken down into the four foundations of mindfulness, but that's a whole other discussion. But what we're saying is you're looking at how your mind is responding and reacting to different situations. So there are two components to that. That's sati, that's mindfulness, and sampanjanya, which means clear comprehension. In other words, when you're walking, you, are, you know you are walking. When you are standing, you know you're standing. When you're sitting down, you know you're sitting down. When you're lying down, you know you're lying down. When you're putting on your clothes, you know you're putting on your clothes. When you're eating, you know you're eating. And in other words, being in the present moment, having the presence of awareness to know what it is that you're doing, and along with that, the sati of knowing where your mind is in relation to that. Is it taking it personally? Is there craving in there? Is there identification in there? Or is the mind free of that? This is what is constituted as right mindfulness. And finally, that takes you into right collectedness. Samasamadhi. So right collectedness means having the right unification of mind, not becoming one-pointed or absorbed in the object of meditation, but rather having the unification of mind and having an open awareness that allows you to see what's going on with the mind as long as the object is in sight. It's like you being a parent and you go to the playground and you let your children play. And while they're playing, you're talking to somebody else, right? You're talking to a friend, but your attention is always there on your child. What are they doing? What's going on? It's some fraction of attention is still there. Sometimes you'll see on YouTube these videos of like these dads, right? They're like just lying down on the sofa and their baby is like, you know, toddling on the sofa and then they fall. But, you know, dad is so alert and attentive, he's able to catch the baby. That level of attention, not being so fully absorbed in what's going on, just enough attention to know that your object of meditation is there. In that way, then you can <coughs> notice if a hindrance arises and you can release it, you can relax it, you can let it go and come back to your object of meditation. So the more you do this, this is the path to follow when you get off of retreat, is to keep your sila. Just because you're on retreat, a lot of people do that, like I'll be there on a 10-day retreat so I'll keep the precepts while I'm on retreat. Once I get off a of retreat, I'll go back to partying and uh, smoking and drinking and all of the other good stuff, right? <laughs> no, this is a lifelong practice. These five basic precepts are to be kept all the time. If you do that and you commit to keeping these five basic precepts, you are already fulfilling sila. You're already fulfilling right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then samadhi happens on its own. When the mind has sila, the mind becomes non-agitated. It lets go of any disturbances, any kind of crude disturbances. And it is ripe naturally for samadhi. When you notice that you keep precepts and you sit for meditation, you will notice for yourself that your mind has less distractions to deal with, less hindrances to deal with. 
And in fact, hindrances do arise because at some point the mind did break a precept. And as a result, you experience any of these five hindrances. So then Samadhi is the equipment of utilizing right effort to bring back your mindfulness, which is to observe how your attention is moving and let your attention remain on one object as best as it can so that jhanas <coughs> can arise naturally because the four jhanas are constituted or make up right samadhi or right collectedness as you keep doing this more and more and more then you will have wisdom that's the third aspect which is panya and that happens as the ripening of a fruit Right? When the fruit, you don't need to pluck the fruit. When the fruit is ripe, it will fall off the tree. That wisdom will naturally arise. You cannot cause it to happen. You can't force it to happen. It will happen as a consequence, as a fruition of the efforts in sila and samadhi. And so in that way, the right view that is the super mundane right view comes to it comes to place in panya in wisdom and the right intention automatically becomes part of that mind that has that fully established wisdom and that's why i talked about the tenfold path for somebody who's fully awakened eventually when you do when you do happen to become an arahant then you have right knowledge or samanyana and right liberation or sama vimutti. What is right knowledge? Right knowledge is the insight, the full insight into dependent origination. The Buddha has said, and this was quoted by Sariputta in Majjhimanikaya 28, where he says, the Buddha has said, one who sees dependent origination knows the Dhamma and one who knows the Dhamma sees dependent origination. So when you have that, then you have full knowledge and liberation. That is Samanya, that is right knowledge. From there, you have right liberation. What is that right liberation? Letting go of all ten fetters and now having Vimutti, which means having gotten off of the wheel of samsara. And also for the arhat being able to enter into Nibbana whenever they want. That will happen in due course of time. Just focus on these three first. Sila, first and foremost. Then Samadhi, and wisdom will naturally arise. Now, another way of understanding why to keep the precepts is that there is a lot of power in keeping the precepts. Bhante Vimaramsi has always said, when you take care of the Dhamma, the Dhamma takes care of you. You are always protected whenever you keep the precepts. There is an understanding that in keeping the precepts, certain faculties also arise. Certain things happen in your life that seem almost magical. Your intuition grows, your ability to discern what seems to be the right decision and wrong decision starts to become cultivated and perfected. So keeping the precepts keeps a very balanced mind. And a balanced mind 
A quiet mind is the birthplace of intuition. And intuition will never be wrong. It might not be the answer you're looking for, but it will always be the right answer. So this is the way to lead your life off of retreat. Follow the Eightfold Path. Everything else will take care of itself. Any questions? Yeah, go ahead. No questions? Yeah. The meditation that we did today and yesterday yeah. on the aggregates yeah. was, uh, yeah, was, uh, was a really, 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 really good one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you, you mentioned that uh, there's a possibly another version of that meditation from the origination. Uh, I don't know if it's the same one or if it's a different one. Um, because it depends on how much was cut out. But if there is, then you'll have to look for it online on YouTube. Yeah. Just look on the Dhammasukha YouTube or the Suttavaras YouTube. Uh, yeah, one of those two. And look for the five aggregates meditation. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because the reason I brought that up is because we do have some doctors here, right? And some of them might have read that in the suttas and be a little concerned about that. So, uh, so you know, in different sutras, it talks about right livelihood in different ways because it depends on who the Buddha was talking to. If he was talking to lay people, then he was talking about abstaining from these five different kinds of trades killing and so on and so forth. But if he's talking to monastics, what he's saying is, he's not only talking about doctors, he's talking about not being a doctor, not being a healer, not being a palmist, not being an astrologer, not reading the signs, not reading the skies, all of these other things that uh, people might do as a way of earning their livelihood. Because at the time of the Buddha, you had all kinds of sons and sadhus who did all kinds of practices, occult practices and so on. And so his, his whole idea was, if we are having this Sangha established by me, the Buddha, I am saying as the Buddha that we should differentiate what we represent from what everyone else is representing, which includes sometimes dealing in occult practices, dealing in reading signs, dealing in astrology and other things like that. But he also mentioned doctors because that was also some kind of practice that was going on, like healing practices, essentially. And so what he said is for monks, their main thing that they have to do is go for alms, get your food, and then go for the days abiding. Your work is essentially to meditate. So your eight hours in a day is to meditate. That's it, as monastics. And to keep the Vinaya, keep the tradition alive by reciting the suttas. That, happens, that happened later after the Buddha, establishing the three baskets, that is the sutras, the Vinaya, and the Abhidhamma. So that's, that's why we're talking about wrong livelihood for monastics, is anything else is really wrong livelihood. I will even go as far as to say, you, know, you have monastics 
who pursue PhDs and do these kinds of things and go and study further and all of that. To an extent, I can, I can grant them that in the sense that, okay, maybe they're doing it to, to elevate their knowledge, to have a deeper understanding of the Abhidhamma or other aspects of this practice. But some monastics might do it because they just want that PhD degree. So the intention also is there. And that would be wrong, that would be considered wrong livelihood. Yeah. In the suttas, the Buddha generally, there's not so many lay arahants, right? Mm. Usually when a, when a lay person becomes an arahant, he's about to uh, ordain, or, or he just ordained, or he's about to die. Yeah. Uh, did the times change? Uh, can, can, is it possible for us as lay people to attain arahantship? Like, what is preventing? The Buddha has talked about this in uh, the Tevija Sutta, in Majmanikaya. He talked about it and he said that the, the main thing that's preventing the complete, you know, going into arahatship is the householder fetish, uh, the fetter of householdership. Which means being concerned about paying bills, taking care of family, getting that new house, you know, possessions, things like that. So the fetter of householdership can be essentially for anyone. They don't necessarily have to be in a family life. Even somebody who is single might be still concerned about paying bills, might still be concerned about making an income and feeding themselves and so on and so forth. So if you would take that context, then you could see that really if there was somebody who was a lay person, so to speak, that is to say, not traditionally within the monastic community, but followed a lifestyle that was not dependent upon earning an income and was not concerned about um, feeding a family, not concerned about paying bills and so on, then that person would be considered somebody who is like an ascetic in that sense, somebody who is a wanderer. A good example of this is somebody like Bhaiya, who was also understood as an ascetic, not in the tradition of the Buddha, not in the Sangha. But when he went to the Buddha, he spoke with the Buddha and he said, give me some instruction that I might then attain arahatship. And what did the Buddha say? I'm going for lunch, ask me after lunch. And so he asked him a second time, I might die in this next moment. So if you just give me some instruction. And again, the Buddha said, I'm on my lunch break, come back after lunch. And a third time, Bhaiya asked him the same question. And finally, it's like, every time you ask the Buddha three times something, he has to grant it to you. So he says, okay, listen carefully. And he gives him these instructions. He says, in the seen, there's only the seen. In the heard, there's only the heard. In the sensed, there's only the sensed. In the cognized, there's only the cognized. When, Bahia, there is no you in that, then there is no you by that. When there is no you by that, there is no you in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. And the reason he gave that instruction to Bahia was because Bahia was under the belief that there was a self who was the, who was the seer behind the scene, who was the hearer behind the herd who was the censor behind the sensed, who was cognizing behind the cognition. 
Once Bai understood this and let go of that, he let go of all self-concept and attained arahatship. He attained arahatship, was walking the street, right, well, crossing the street, boom, gets killed by a bull. Then the Buddha says to the monks, go monks and give Bahia the proper rites as you would to a member of the Sangha. Even though he was not traditionally accepted as a Sangha member. So there is also um, mention of an Arahat who was a lay Arahat, who was an acrobat, uh, acrobatic. He was somebody who was like uh, doing all kinds of acrobatics. And the Buddha gave him, do you know the name? Oh. Yes, Ugasena. And the instruction that was given to him, he immediately got it and attained Arahatship. <coughs> so he was considered a lay Arahat. But of course, later on, it was understood that he then went into the monastic uh, lifestyle. So I think it just depends on how people want to look at it. But could there be lay Arahats? Depends on what your definition of lay means. <coughs> Any other questions? Yeah. This relates to Samma uh, Ajivirka, right? Like before. There are a lot of monastics who now are found on the campus in certain courses. Mm -hmm. Now, so long they do, as you said, the course in Buddhist uh, culture, literature, or even Buddhism for that matter. Or you're learning quite well. Right? Yeah. You said they can be thinking because they're trying to ripen their understanding of the Dhamma. Yeah. But when they do their MA or Masters in Geography or Political Science or Sociology, when they have ordained themselves to open the bottom, Dhamma and achieve Nibbana. Now, whether the, uh, the other subjects could be more relevant to them and whether that could be their Adhika, this is number one. Yeah. Some monks are also working. Mm. Okay. In the university, Mm. So long they again teach Buddhism and all that, maybe as you said, I don't know. This is one, one concern. Second concern is there are certain people who are uh, rearing goats and you know, there are, there are goat farms and there are uh, pig farms. Yeah. So they don't directly harm them, but they rather rear them. So whether that Ajivaka is also mm. Uh, mm. not the kind of uh, Ajivaka which can be, they could be exemplified. Yeah. So as to monks who are studying geography or history or anything like that, that's wrong livelihood. As to monks who are earning money, that's wrong livelihood. As to uh, farmers who are rearing different kinds of livestock, it depends on what that is for. If they are doing it because eventually those animals will head towards becoming slaughtered, then there's a very gray area there. Seminaries. No, no, no. Anagarikas. They take ten precepts? Well, they're seminaries then. Seminaries. Now, it is said that the Buddha said that the Bikuni Sangha would be there only for five years. Yeah. Now, the practice will continue in certain countries, whereas in certain Buddhist countries, they don't allow that. Yeah. So, what is the right view of it? 
I think that's just blatant sexism. <laughs> yeah. You have to really take into account what is actually the Buddha's words and what is maybe not the Buddha's words. Because in my mind, I think somebody who's fully awakened, not that they have to be woke necessarily, in the sense that they have to be politically correct all the time, but in the sense that there are certain things that just, why would they talk about that? It seems to be more cultural rather than something related to ethics or meditation or wisdom. Related to uh, uh, Buddha learning uh, seven jhanas and the eight jhan from uh, Buddha Tramputta. Yes. Yeah. So, but then uh, he uh, turned on to uh, uh, austerities. Yeah. And then uh, uh, after he realizes that uh, this is not working, and then he realized that when he sat down at the age of five, yeah, uh, he meditated. Uh, so what did he practice? The eight jhanas were one-pointedness or what, what did he practice? What I, 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 I'm confused about that. What he practiced was basically nothingness, right? One was the seventh jhana of nothingness, which was learned by, uh, learned from Alara Kalama. And then uh, Udhaka Ramaputta said to him that I don't know the way to the eighth jhana or to this neither perception or non-perception, but my father knew and I can tell you what he told me and you can try it for yourself. So as to what he practiced there, what he saw was this is not the ultimate. It's not leading to the ultimate, which is complete cessation of suffering. As to whether that was one-pointed or not, it depends on which sutta you read, but it does say that it was, it was uh, leading to being absorbed or another sutta will say it just doesn't lead to you know the nibbana doesn't lead to cessation of suffering and so he let go of that practice and then on his way was inspired by probably seeing other ascetics doing austerities thinking maybe this is not way and he tried that and he realized that's not the way either but then he went full circle by coming back to practicing jhana again from the first jhana onwards actually the traditional story in um, the sutta is in Majjhima Nikaya 19 it talks about that the Buddha actually went, when he was a bodhisattva he actually went through uh, his past lives <coughs> so that was the first knowledge then he went through seeing the arising and passing away of beings according to their karma that was the second knowledge and then finally he saw the destruction of the asavas the taints that's the third knowledge that was his entry into arahatship, in, into Buddhahood. But he did that when he got into the fourth jhana. So he went through the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, and in the fourth jhana. And then from the fourth jhana, he inclined his mind towards these threefold knowledges. That's the way he attained enlightenment. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of mention of that, but uh, I think equally or almost equally, there's also mention of the eight jhanas 
Almost equally, there's also mention of just the four jhanas and then experiencing panya vimutti, letting go and experiencing cessation from them. So does that, does that mean, uh, are we talking here in the sense that for jhana, uh, uh, like for jhana from without all the... Without the infinite space, infinite consciousness and so on. But infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothing, neither perception, are all encompassed in the fourth jhana anyway. That's why I was saying yesterday, there's only four jhanas. And so these, these places, like exploring past lives and, and that sort of thing, is that, because I, I thought that the eighth jhana is where that can take place. It can happen from the fourth jhana, mm -hmm. yeah. Is that a worthwhile thing to practice? You can try it, <laughs> I can show you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In continuation to what uh, yeah. is being discussed, uh, these days past life regression yeah. has become a therapeutic tool. So uh, you, you think it really works that way? It is like revisiting the life yeah. uh, itself is therapeutic. Right. Um, I, I guess it just depends on the type of therapy that's used, but um, yeah, I, I couldn't really comment on it unless knowing the, the real details of it. Maybe it does have some utility because I know, for example, there are other kinds of therapy like MDMA therapy where for people with PTSD, they relive the same traumatic events, but under the influence of this medication or drug that creates a different kind of perspective on that same memory. And it apparently has some utility and some value in it. So if they're doing something like that, not necessarily with drugs, but with the reframing of your perspective on those same memories, maybe there is some utility to it. But just going through past lives themselves uh, might not be that meaningful. It's just a, a fun thing to do, let's say. Mm. And then in trance, they go into past life. Mm. And whatever the traumatic uh, events or issues, uh, that they carry forward in this life. Okay. And for no reason they're suffering. They don't even know that. Mm. It has no connection with current life. But they still have this problem. So uh, while revisiting that, uh, so this is clear. Just by revisiting it? Interesting. We have seen a person say, suppose having some arrow wounds or some bullet wounds in past life, is having some um, unexplained <coughs> burning sensations or vicarious pains or things like that. Um, so they are just gone through this and uh, that's all. After that, no uh, burning sensations or pains. Like that. Interesting. That type of okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Many lives, many uh, yeah, but then uh, there are many people now uh, offering this, and it's working therapeutically. Okay. It has nothing to do with. Uh, I'm sorry, you. Yes, yeah, done. And just wondering whether you uh, you feel maybe forgiveness might be perhaps could it? He said maybe that is that the fastest way. Uh, because I remember in one of Hunter's videos. I think he mentioned something about uh, someone who was a soldier in a past 
something like that. Mm -hmm. And I had a particular pain where he had stabbed someone, or, and really through forgiveness, uh, they overcame even that physical pain in this life. So I'm just wondering what you would have to say as forgiveness, as that sense in a quote unquote, as a therapeutic tool. Absolutely, because uh, I can tell you from another person's uh, experience where they did go into past lives and then that's very interesting because you brought up the idea of reliving those and then the, the, the pain goes away. But in some instances, there are people who go through those past lives and then they keep holding on to that. And so for that, you will need forgiveness practice. So they keep reliving that, but it only causes them more um, craving or aversion to that particular experience. And that manifests in some kind of knot in the body or some kind of pain in the body, something that just seems to not go away. And so for that reason, when you do forgiveness, like there was a prescription for them to do forgiveness after they went through this past life, and it actually did help them by letting go because what's going on there is you could, the, the mind could identify and take that personally, that experience of that past life. And that could cause more damage to them because it's like now you have another point of identification that the mind is doing. So to let go of that, then the forgiveness would be prescribed. It's like what some of these therapists call re-trauma. Yeah. It's like you go through that again, but you get traumatized again. Right. I mean, uh, that could happen, who knows, but... <coughs> uh, what do you mean by beginner's mindset? Heard in yeah. video. Everything I've told you guys in these last three days, just throw it in the dustbin. <laughs> <laughs> That's beginner's mindset. Just not trying to figure out everything that's being said, not trying to study it, not trying to make it into a subject. Just letting go of everything and every meditation that you do is, is, is a fresh meditation. It's just the start. There's no uh, baggage of past experiences, good, bad, or indifferent. You're just, everyone that you do is a new <coughs> meditation. That's the beginner's mindset. Then you're saying just stay with it. 
That sounds to me like you're not on loving kindness. Because if you're straining against the hindrance, then that means your full attention is being given to the hindrance. And the second question is about relaxation. Um, if somebody, uh, a teacher mentioned that you, relaxation is also something like you relax into alertness. It's not just about relaxing into, you know, just letting everything go and kind of slumping. But it's like relaxing into alertness. Yeah. Does that make sense? Could you please eliminate that? So when you relax, what you're also experiencing is a mundane form of Nibbana. Why? Because when you relax, you're letting go of all craving. And in that moment, your mind is free of any kind of conditioned experience or conditions for suffering to arise. So every time you relax, you're actually experiencing nirodha, a mundane form of nirodha. Which means there, there is a mind that is like the clear, vast blue sky without any clouds in there. And so that's what you're relaxing into. From there, then you smile and then you come back. What if that is not available to you, even when you try to, when you relax? What is available to you when you relax? What if, what if that clear mind like a blue sky is not available to you, even if you relax? But what is available in its place? Or what is available in its place? Um, a more agitated mind which is dealing with hindrances. So in which case then one should forgive? In which case, in which case then there is no relaxing going on. There is a... You know, Bhante would call using the six R's like a stick. You know, preemptively using the six R's or six R'ing because you have aversion to the hindrance. Then there's no relaxation there. So then perhaps that is a type of practice and maybe forgiveness or something else. Possibly. Or uh, refine or retune your six R's to in, su in such a way that you're not having aversion to whatever is going on. And you're not trying so hard to relax. You're not trying to relax. You are just letting go, which means the hindrance will be there. But your aversion and tightness in relation to that hindrance is loosened in the relaxed stuff. Definitely, definitely. You obviously, you, all, you need good circulation in the body for you to be able to sit for longer periods of time. That's why Bhante would suggest that when you are sitting for two, three, four hours at a time, you need to walk at a brisk pace to the point that you're getting a little <coughs> breathless so that you have some good you know, circulation going on, some good cardio. So exercise is absolutely important. It can be, but if you want to do yoga, you could do yoga. You want to do calisthenics, you could do that. You want to do aerobics, you could do that. You want to do weightlifting, you could do that. You want to do qigong, you could do that. You want to do, I mean, whatever you want to do, you can do. As long as you're not causing yourself harm or another person harm. I mean, you could, you could box if you want. <laughs> I know, I mean, I just said as long as you're not causing another person harm, but there's no intention to harm. It's uh, it's a sport. Yeah. 
for fitness. So don't knock them out. Don't knock them out. <laughs> or don't, don't have anger behind your punches. No. <laughs> Don't bite anyone's ear off either. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. Talked about uh, <coughs> to one's parents. Now, who said that because Buddha left his own home? I didn't say duty to one's parents. No. <laughs> I said gratitude to one's parents. Yeah. Buddha said that. Them, yeah. But if we can help them be more moral, if we can uplift their mind. More. Yeah. Can we do a UNESCO up to three times in a day? Yes, absolutely. But just do forgiveness, don't do anything else. You're asking the wrong person. I don't represent. I have no representations of anyone. I'm an independent freelancer. You don't have a plan to establish a Uh, we'll see. Work on it for. It'll happen. Yeah. And he wanted to know, is there anyone who can tell that he had this experience for some months together when he was doing this padayata and reaching out to people and taking donations from people and then giving it back to people. While all this is happening, he was absolutely not aware of that. Mm. He was in complete communion with God. <coughs> Yeah, it's possible. Is that the only way, uh, Buddha, Buddha's way to attain Nibbana? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> do what works for you. That's what I'll say. Do what works for you. Everybody has their own <coughs> understanding of what that might be, and just do what works for you. Yeah. How much is keeping our spine straight is important? Can we sometimes we can uh, maybe lie on the side and? Yeah. Mentally, we are 
on object of meditation because we are tired sitting. So can we lie down on a side and suppose lie and fold and meditate? How did Buddha attain parinibbana? <laughs> Doesn't matter what the posture is. Do you suggest anything? So you have to understand, when we talk about these other traditions, Shushumna, Ida, Pingala and all of that, the Buddha never mentioned them. Because, not because they didn't exist, but he maybe didn't think that it was beneficial for the time to talk about it. Because when you read about Kriya and all of these are very tantric principles, tantric <coughs> ideas, which are formed much later, after the Buddha. So if it helps you, then by all means do it. No need to try to justify or verify or confirm. Do what works for you. That's it. As long as you are keeping your precepts and your mind remains balanced in meditation, doesn't become fully absorbed to the point that you can't deal with hindrances. In other words, you have the balanced effort and you're letting go. You can do all kinds of practices that you want. Like I said, Qigong, you want to do uh, <coughs> uh, Tai Chi or yoga, Kundalini, whatever it is, go ahead, do it. But see if it works for you. If it's starting to get in the way of you actually uh, letting go of suffering and it's causing you suffering, then probably not do that. Because remember, the Buddha always said he only teaches two things. What is suffering and the end of suffering. Yeah. Uh, I have a question regarding the refuge. Like, you know, a lay person has, let's say, many problems, right? And, and in, you know, within India, you have different deities, right? You know, like Shiva and all. So, uh, at one point, <coughs> is that, uh, you know, Buddha says that uh, people take many kinds of refuges. The highest refuge is refuge in the Dharma. So, is it, uh, uh, you know, possible that one can also take refuge, uh, you know, maybe if some people have certain problems and to deal with those problems, uh, they need to take refuge in some other deity, you know, or they want some knowledge, you know, they do certain practices that, for which they have to take refuge in a particular deity or do certain practices. Is that refuge in, in a particular deity compatible with, uh, you know, with this practice? I guess it depends on what your uh, definition of refuge means. I think that's up to them. Because uh, 
some people find that uh, when they take refuge in the Dhamma, it uh, helps them with dealing with their problems. So it's up to the person. Is that it? Let's share some merit. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.